say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm really pleased uh, to uh, have with me today um, Matt Ridley. Matt is, of course, a a well-known science writer, uh, most recently uh, of this book, which we will be discussing, whoops, there it is, Viral with uh, Alita, Alina Chan. Um, uh, previously, he wrote uh, his book on how innovation works, uh, which I interviewed him on, uh, must have been a year or two ago, I can't even remember anymore. And of course, he is famous as the rational optimist, and we will ask him if he still is. Um, you can ask Matt questions on the Super Chat, so feel free to do so. Um, I, am, I am monitoring it. Uh, we're doing this live for that purpose. Um, so, uh, Matt, welcome. Yaron, it's great to be back on your show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. I, I, um, I actually got a, a pre-publication copy of the book and uh, managed to read it last week. And uh, I have to say, in spite of the depressing topic, um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It reads like a detective story. Uh, it, it could have easily gotten bogged down with a lot of details and a lot of science speak. Uh, and yet, as you always manage to do, it, it, it read, it was, it was easy and it, it, it flowed nicely. And it presented, I thought, a very fair perspective on all the different possibilities in terms of, that we know of. We don't know what we don't know uh, in terms of the uh, in terms of the origin. So, uh, yeah, thank you for writing this. Um, well, a lot of the credit should go to my co-author, Alina Chan, a brilliant young scientist uh, who's been uh, uh, pushing for proper investigation of exactly how this pandemic started for, for, for nearly two years now. And uh, she's she's ex extraordinary. And it was a real pleasure and um, privilege to, to work with her. Although I only met her for the first time 10 days ago. <laughs> I heard. <laughs> so you did this all virtually. That's yeah, amazing. Exactly. So, so tell us a little bit about how, how you got started on this. I mean, you obviously have not made friends with this project. Uh, and, uh, and, and what got you motivated? You've always been focused on the positive, if you will, innovation, progress, explaining it, giving out kind of the, 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 the scientific context for it. Uh, how did you get involved in, in this particular project? Yeah, well, you're right that the pandemic is a setback for those of us who believe in progress and, and optimism. Um, I did in the Rational Optimist say that one of the things that could derail progress in the 21st century was a pandemic. I later said 
I don't think it's going to happen because uh, we're, our genetic technologies are getting so good. Well, I was wrong there. Um, but to, to some extent, I think I owe it to myself to understand um, why this setback happened. Um, but I think the world deserves an answer. Um, you know, there are maybe 16 million people dead now. That's an enormous death toll. We owe it to them and their families. We also need to find out in order to prevent another pandemic. Um, and I think we have to bear in mind that bad actors are what, watching this, excuse me, watching this episode and saying to themselves, we could wreak havoc, havoc with a virus. Um, so, you know, we need to show that we're going to find out how it happened uh, and, and track down anyone who started it. I'm not so, I don't think anyone did start it deliberately, but I think it's possible that an accident in research happened, as, as we argue in the book, and that needs to be found out if it's the case. So it, it's very much been a, you know, a project that I, I, I didn't wish on myself. I didn't say, oh, this is going to be fun. I just think this is too important not to find. This is the most important question facing humanity at the moment, I think. You know, we, we, we've got a devastating pandemic that's killing millions, and we don't know how it started. That's not good enough for me. I want to find out. I want to over, turn over every stone that might show an answer. What is the importance of how it started? So, you know, what 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 could we learn if we knew if it whether it was uh, a direct transmission from animal to human or whether it came from a lab? Obviously, if it was an engineered, there's lessons there. But but why is the origin so important? Um, because uh, the uh, the if if it came through the wildlife trade from a food market then there are very clear lessons that we aren't doing enough to stop um, these viruses getting into the human race from that means. If it came because of cutting down forests, we need to look into that. If it came because of a bio-warfare program, we need to look into that. If it came because of a laboratory accident during well-meaning uh, scientific research, we need to, to think again about how such research is, is regulated. Of those various possibilities, the ones that we think uh, very clearly are still plausible, and the others really are not at all plausible. The ones that are plausible are that it was something to do with the wildlife mark, uh, food trade, uh, or that it was a uh, an accident in a research laboratory. And the evidence for those two um, uh, is what we examine at great length in the book. And we both started out thinking the wildlife trade was more likely, but the research-related accident couldn't be ruled out. We now think that the research-related accident is more likely. We lean towards that explanation. The more we found out, the weaker the food-related explanation has become and the stronger the lab-related explanation has become. So obviously we can't go through the whole book and, and all the details that you provide there, but can you give us an outline of each one of those hypotheses, of each one of those possibilities, the, the food market, the natural... Um, Kind of a natural uh, transmission in, in, in the lab lab leak uh, theory. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, in outline, uh, the uh, the many of the early cases in Wuhan were close to or associated with um, a market where food was for sale. It was called a seafood market. Most of it was seafood, um, but we also know that some wild animals were sold in that market. Not very many, but some, and that very much echoed what happened in the case of SARS. 
a very closely related virus that caused an epidemic in 2002, three in southern China, much further south than Wuhan. Um, and that was very quickly identified as having been um, uh, started mainly among food handlers, among chefs and, and market traders, um, and was being caused by, uh, uh, they were picking it up from animals called palm civets and a number of other animals. And these uh, animals had somehow acquired a bat virus. It became clear also that this was a virus from bats. So why not the same explanation? This time seems to make a lot of sense. It does seem to be a bit of a connection with the, the seafood market. The problem is that as time has gone by, they've tested animal after animal, and they've not been able to find a single one carrying this virus. 80,000 animals have now been tested in China. Um, uh, the, it shouldn't take two years to track this down. As for the early cases, China has simply not been forthcoming about what the professions of those people were, what their locations were, et cetera, et cetera. We just, we, we don't have a good contact tracing pattern for the early cases. Now, either they've got one and they're not sharing it with us, or they haven't done, done the work properly, both of which are rather disturbing possibilities. Meanwhile, we have to look at another possibility, which is that, Wuhan is not where these viruses live naturally. Uh, in in uh, the previous pandemic in, in Guangzhou, uh, that is where these viruses live. Yeah. But lots of it, uh, testing has been done on bats in and around Wuhan city, and they don't carry this virus. The virus lives a thousand miles to the south in bats that live in that region, uh, in Southeast Asia and Southern China. So the question is how it got from there to there. And there isn't a very big wildlife trade to Wuhan, not, nothing like as big as there is to Guangdong province. Um, uh, but what there is, is a lot of scientists who go from Wuhan to southern China, sample bats for viruses, take the samples back to Wuhan, to a particular institute called the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is the leading institute in the world for studying bat-borne SARS-like coronaviruses, and has published more papers on it than any other topic, has collected more samples, has a bigger database than any other. And at that lab, they do experiments with those viruses that include um, uh, sequencing their genomes, altering their genomes, testing their infectious ability in human cells, testing them in humanized mice. Um, and uh, we know that among the viruses they took to Wuhan, were some that were very closely related to this virus. And we know they were sequencing one of those viruses in 2018, and they may have been looking at others, similar ones. So it's not unreasonable to say, are you sure there wasn't an accident? Now, the response from the Chinese lab has been saying, we've, we've looked into it, we don't think there was an accident. Um, well, uh, in 2003-04, SARS, uh, infected researchers at least four times, twice in Beijing, once in Taiwan, once in Singapore. And in three of those cases, nobody knew how it happened. All they knew was that a researcher working on SARS in, la in the lab caught SARS. And since there's no SARS in the community, the only way they could have caught it was in the lab. So, and, and this virus is far more infectious than SARS. It's far easier to catch. So if it was in a laboratory, a researcher would be almost bound to have picked it up. And he might have thought he was just suffering from a cold, because one of the worrying features of this virus is that it is so mild in younger people that, that they wouldn't make a big deal out of it. And the intelligence community tells us that three researchers from that institute were hospitalized with 
uh, what sound very like symptoms uh, of this disease in November 2019, which is about the right time period. Now, I can't um, independently confirm that. I, I, I don't have security clearance yeah. <laughs> to know what the source yeah. of that information is. But it, it, the, it, it you know, the, in the end, a, a bat SARS born. A bat-borne SARS-like virus causes a pandemic starting in a city which has the biggest research program on bat-borne SARS-like coronaviruses. That deserves our attention. And those who say, don't be ridiculous, of course it was something to do with the food market, even though we found no infected animals. I'm no. sorry, they're not being responsible. So a lot of people say, you know, this lab was a, you know, the most secure lab, right? Category four, whatever they call it. And, and the probability of something escaping from category four is very low. But one of the things you document in the book is that they weren't doing their SARS research or their bad virus research in that particular lab. Correct. The, the only category four, uh, which is the highest security level lab in China is at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It opened its doors a couple of years ago. Um, it was built with the collaboration of the French. But uh, the, that's not the lab they've been doing this work in. They've been doing this work in um, biosecurity level three for the humanized mice experiments and biosecurity level two for the human cell experiments. Now, two is nothing really more than make sure you're wearing gloves. I mean, you, don't, you might not even have to wear a mask or goggles in biosecurity level two. Um, uh, and that's fine if you're working with a virus that you know can't infect humans, which is probably what they thought about most of these bat viruses. But they were looking for bat viruses that had the capability of infecting humans. That's why they were looking. So it does seem odd to have been doing those experiments at biosecurity level two. And experienced researchers, the most experienced coronavirus researcher of all, Ralph Barrick, uh, is among those who've said that doesn't sound right. They should have been doing this work uh, at a higher security level. Did uh, so since uh, since the book came out uh, and it came out this week. But since uh, since you wrote the book or finished the book, there's some new evidence. I saw I saw a um, an article you wrote recently or I guess last week um, uh, documenting that evidence uh, about the potential lab leak theory. Yeah. What is that? Yeah. Uh, there was one bit of evidence we just managed to squeeze in to the book just before uh, we finished uh, editing it. Uh, and there was another bit that came out just too late. And that was that a very similar virus has now been found in Laos, in the country to the south of China. Slightly more similar than the most similar one we knew about so far. And so everyone said, oh, well, that's fine. That lets the scientists off the hook because they've got no connection with Laos. These are Chinese scientists working in China. Well, very shortly after that, a document was leaked which showed that the EcoHealth Alliance, which is this uh, US-based foundation that, that coordinates a lot of this virus hunting work in China and neighboring countries, had been collecting similar viruses to this in Laos, among other countries, for a number of years, but had said to their funders in the US government, in order not to have the complication of dealing with subcontractors in Laos, we would like to send these samples that we collect to a, a partner that we already work with, which is the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So these samples from Southeast Asia will be sent to Wuhan. Now, 
so therefore the, the the discovery of a Laos connection or a closely related virus in Laos doesn't exonerate the Wuhan Institute of, Labor of Virology at all, nor does it convict it, of course, it doesn't produce direct evidence either way. But that, you know, that's an example of the kind of things. Now, the one thing the Laos virus lacks that SARS-CoV-2 has got is a feature called the, the, the furin cleavage site. This is a little feature that makes the virus highly infectious. It's one of the reasons, it's one of the main reasons we're having a pandemic rather than a, a local outbreak. And that's a very odd feature because although other coronaviruses have this feature, no SARS-like coronavirus has ever been found with it. Thousands have been looked at, none of them have ever been found with this feature. So the question is, could that have been put in deliberately? Well, putting furin cleavage sites into uh, viruses has become a bit of a hobby, actually, of virologists over the last 10 years. There's been at least 11 experiments to do that. One of them, we now know, was planned Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. By the EcoHealth Alliance with the Wuhan Institute of Virology in 2018, they asked for money to do exactly this for a SARS-like coronavirus. They said, if we find a novel SARS-like coronaviruses, um, we would like to put in a novel furin cleavage site and see if it makes it easier to grow these viruses in cells in the laboratory. Now, you would think that the EcoHealth Alliance which is a US-based foundation and whose president has been involved very closely in the World Health Organization investigation into this, might have volunteered this information sometime in the last two years. But it came as a result of a leak of a document at the end of August, the beginning of September. It's a pretty extraordinary state of affairs that even in the West, let alone in China, people like me and Alina Chan, who want to find out what happened, are left scratching around with freedom of information requests and leaked documents to find out what our money as taxpayers was funding in these labs and what they were planning to do with it, uh, rather than um, proper transparency. So it, 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 could the furin cleavage site have been a, uh, could, could, it, could it be a result of a natural mutation? Yes, it could. Um, there's no question that that's true, too. Uh, there is a case of a virus, not a very closely related one, that appeared to evolve a furin cleavage site in the laboratory. What happened was that there were some very rare variants that had it already. And, uh, and the, you know, this is right in the middle of the spike gene. The spike gene mutates a, a lot. Um, but it is an insertion. That is to say, it's, it's a chunk of text that got put in somewhere. It's 12 base pairs long. So it's 12 letters of text in the genome. Now, that's quite a big mutation. You know, it's not a question of just changing one uh, letter here and one letter there. You can get a furin cleavage site by changing one letter here and one letter there. But this didn't happen this way because we look at, you know, you can see the sequence. It's exactly the same uh, on, in all the closely related viruses or pretty well exactly the same up until that point. And then suddenly there's a gap in all the other ones, and there's this sequence in SARS-CoV-2. So um, 
and, and by the way, you could put such things in without leaving any trace. I mean, genetic engineering of a seamless kind has become uh, routine these days. So to what extent, um, what, what, would, what would somebody who thought this was a natural occurrence, what would they say to, to counter that, right? I mean, it, it would be, you know, this is not, because this is not obviously definitive proof that this was uh, tinkered with. Completely right. There is no definitive dispositive proof either way. You know, I mean, all we need is a infected animal from before the outbreak uh, and suddenly the story changes or a laboratory experiment report that shows that this experiment was done. Either of those things would be dispositive. We haven't got either of those things. The, the, what, the thing that... Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, now I was just going to say what Christian Anderson said about the fear and cleavage site when it was first raised as an issue was... Um, uh, don't worry, we'll soon find relatives out there in the wild that have this. You know, come on, we only know of a few of them. Well, we now know of a whole lot more. We know these Laotian ones, we know a couple from Cambodia, we know one from Thailand, we know others from southern Yunnan. Um, there's even one from Japan, although it's not very closely related at all. Um, uh, and none of them have this yet. So the more we discover that don't have this, the less good a prediction it sounds that don't worry we'll find one with this feature uh, one of the things that struck me about what you the evidence you present in the book is the extent to which both the chinese and the eco health alliance seem to resist a providing information b when they provide information it seems to be partial um and it seems like they're doing this in a almost stupid way because obviously you found out what what they weren't disclosing and others have found out what they weren't disclosing. It seems like, what, what do you think the motivation is? Um, uh, what is going on here, particularly for, for a US-based group who, uh, um, you know, who, who, should be, who should be accountable, that gets uh, obviously grants from the NIH and from other government entities, um, you'd think they would be accountable or somebody would hold them accountable. Well, it would be pretty devastating for their reputation, for their funding and everything. And I understand that. Um, uh, just imagine, you know, the purpose of the work they were doing was to avert the next pandemic. You know, that was the job. They, they, they said, give us lots of money and we will go out there and sample viruses from bats all across um, southern China and Southeast Asia. And we will find the ones that threaten to start a pandemic because they're, they're on the brink of being able to infect human beings. And that will be very useful because then we'll be able to test for them. We'll be able to tell you when an outbreak is happening that, is, that can turn into a pandemic. We'll be able to stop it in its tracks. Now, at the very least, that project failed. It did not predict or prevent this pandemic. Okay. At the worst, it may have caused this pandemic. And that is something that is simply unthinkable to these people they, you know it, it it it's not impossible that it happened but it is unthinkable they, you know they don't want to think it and i understand that but it's not our job to worry about how they feel about it our sure. job is to find out what happened but you you would think that they know right at least at least the chinese know one way or the other uh what causes Somebody if, knows. Three, if three people in the lab got sick in November, if that's true, um, then somebody knows that. If 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 they had been working on a uh, on a virus and 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 you know doing these gain of function research, we'll talk about that in a minute. 
then they would know that they had done that research and were trying to tinker with it. Um, But we're getting nothing. Well, there's a database with 22,000 entries in it, 15,000 of them from bats. Um, These are samples and sequences of viruses mainly uh, collected from bats over several years. Um, uh, It exists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It was accessible online, although some of it was password protected until the 12th of September 2019. And at two in the morning on that date, it went offline. And it's never been accessible since. Now, the purpose of that database, as I say, was to give us a bank of information that would help us in the event of a pandemic. Well, which pandemic are they waiting for (laughs) to bring that back online and tell us? Now, when you ask Peter Daszak, the president of the EcoHealth Alliance, whether he has asked his close colleague and friend, Xi Zhengli of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, to release that database... He says, oh, I haven't asked her for that, but I know what's in it, and it's of no relevance. And then all the more reason to release it. You know, if if it proves that that there was no virus in that database that that is at all closely related to SARS-CoV-2, fine, show us it. You know, what are you waiting for? You know, is it because you want patents on the diagnostic tests for future viruses or something. Um, uh, It is extraordinary. Now, I should add at this point, we found that with some very honorable exceptions, mainstream scientists, mainstream journalists, and even mainstream intelligence agents are not much help to us. The people who've been most helped to us are uh, open source analysts, amateur internet sleuths who know how to research the obscure corners of the web to find Chinese documents, theses, databases, um, uh, uh, research reports, grant proposals. Um, uh, And these guys are extraordinary. Uh, You know, there's a guy called the Seeker in India who came up with some incredibly useful information. Uh, There's a Spaniard called Francisco de Ribera in Madrid uh, who just simply ended up creating an enormous spreadsheet on which every serial number of every virus that, that he could track down, um, uh, you know, what, what, was it, what information was, was had about it. Uh, and it was a, um, a very uh, useful bit of work, etc. But no thanks, as I say, to official sources. I mean, these guys are, you know, both those people I've mentioned are, you know, they're kind of working in their basements in their spare time. To me, um, it's, to it's me a, that was stunning, the, the fact that, yes, it, you know, the work that these guys are doing should be what journalists are doing. Uh, and, and we certainly should have scientists involved in this. Um, and it, it, it really shows the power of the Internet. You couldn't have done this 20 years ago. Uh, you would have right. never known. And the power of this connection, this connected world we live in. As you said, the people in all kinds of countries uh, sharing information, digging through the Web, discovering things, bringing it to the forefront. What did you have to do in order to verify that the documents were real? I mean, because it is a mess out there. We all know there are lots of crazy conspiracy theories. I think one of the, I initially responded negatively to the lab leak theory, primarily because of where it was coming from. Uh, You know, places where lots of people dealt with uh, conspiracy theories. How do you separate what, what is a conspiracy and what appears real? Absolutely. Well, this has been a really tough, uh, uh, thing for us to do and there have been many times when uh, Alina Chan and I have 
have said, can we trust this document? Do we think it's real? What can we do to find out whether it is real? Um, uh, and, you know, right at the end of finishing our book, we had this problem with this so-called defuse proposal, which was the one in which the proposal to put the Fuhrer and Cleavage site into um, uh, uh, SARS-like coronavirus was proposed. Um, and we did everything we could to uh, independently verify this. And we ended up, you know, 99.99% convinced that it's not a fake document. Mm -hmm. uh, and effectively, it has been um, confirmed by uh, EcoHealth Alliance and, and, and act, well, you know, we managed to get sources within the Pentagon, actually, to, 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 to verify it. So, so sometimes things like that have, have helped us. Um, but it's also been very helpful. Uh, Alina speaks and reads Chinese. Uh, so we're not relying on translations of documents. Uh, that's quite important. Um, uh, and, you know, in the case of the theses dug up by the, the seeker, you know, you can go and, and look at these databases where he found them. And for a while, they were still there. Of course, they, within a few days, they'd gone. But, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it was possible to... Uh, and actually, in, in one of the, the main things that happened, you know, a whole bunch of stuff was worked out by the seeker, Rosana Segreto, um, Francisco Ribera, and uh, this was still speculative. And then the Wuhan Institute of Virology published an addendum to their paper, which effectively confirmed a bunch of stuff. Um, you know, they, they, they gave a number for how many viruses they had collected in one particular location. It was 1,322. Francisco had by then worked out several months before that they had 1,320 viruses from that location. Wow. So he wasn't far out. And he's not a biologist. He's a, the, uh, I mean, he is, but the seeker's not. No, no the seeker's not. Francisco's not. Rosanna Segreto is. She's no. a, 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 a genomic scientist. She's a, a, you know, a, a professional scientist. Some of these guys are. Uh, Yuri Degin, who's a, an incredibly important figure in this, is a Russian uh, biotech entrepreneur. Um, uh, Francisco is basically a technology consultant. Uh, Gilles Demeneuf, another guy who's been very important, uh, uh, New Zealand-based guy, is... Is, is basically a data scientist. Um, so they're, they're good at digging stuff into the dark corners of the web and finding yeah, well, what, what databases. The, what, what the seeker said to us was, I just know how to make search engines work for me. <laughs> I wish I had that skill. <laughs> exactly. Me yeah. too. So I want to talk a little bit about um, gain of research, uh, gain of function research. If you could tell us what that is and then give us the best the best positive argument for why we should do it, right? Uh, and, and then we can talk about what the, what the risks are um, related to it. Yeah. Well, there was a big debate in 2014, 2015 over something called gain-of-function research. And it blew up for two reasons. One, because of a couple of experiments done on influenza, done very responsibly in very careful conditions in, very, in a very safe way, um, uh, but the purpose of which was to see how easy it was to turn a bird influenza virus into a mammal influenza virus that could be spread through the air. Um, and uh, the answer was it was quite easy, genetically and evolutionarily. So that's useful information that came out of such an experiment. But it's also a dangerous experiment, because if one of the ferrets that got infected in one of these experiments, you know, uh, wasn't properly disposed of and somebody breathed in while they were handling its body, um, then suddenly you've got a, a pandemic on your hands that's more dangerous than it would have been at the beginning of the experiment. 
So that was what the debate was all about. And around the same time, there was a series of high profile incidents in US laboratories, including the discovery of smallpox, including the transmission through the, 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 the um, smallpox samples that should have been destroyed previously, um, including a, a, a dangerous type of flu that was sent through the post, which it shouldn't have been, you know, et cetera, which reminded everybody that for all your protocols, things can go wrong in labs. So a bunch of scientists called themselves the Cambridge Working Group campaigned very hard to say, we are going too far. We're doing stuff that we that is well motivated, but it's probably not worth the risk. Uh, and we ought to, to pause it and stop it. In 2014, the Obama administration um, did begin to, did pause funding for that research, federal funding for that research. That pause was lifted in 2017. In any case, the pause had lots of exemptions in it. If you're working on animal viruses and you weren't Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Testing them in human beings, then maybe uh, it was okay. You know, the, you, the, it was very easy to continue some kind of this research. A lot of people felt that the pause was was honored in the breach rather than uh, in, uh, in, in, in the, the way it should have been. Um, so this event has clearly revived that. Whether this pandemic began this way or not, I personally, as a huge fan of biotechnology, as somebody who's always supported uh, it as the best possible way to improve the planet for human beings and for the environment, um, uh, I'm shocked by how far virologists have been going in terms of taking risks with experiments, the, the rewards of which are not noticeably huge. You know, uh, yes, it's helped to know how easy a virus could turn into a pandemic. But is it worth risking starting a pandemic while doing that? I don't think it is. So, so, you know, so if, if this debate continues, even after the discovery that this pandemic actually had nothing to do with such research, which is possible, I will be among those calling for greater uh, precautions around this research. Is, um, is there anything to be said that this could advance discovering cures, vaccines, ways in which to handle pandemics much better in the future? Is there, yes, there, is is. there an argument like that to be made? Yeah, and, and 
you know, related specifically to this work on SARS-like viruses, there was a debate between two groups of virologists just a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. in which one group said, um, look, I think there are better ways of preparing for a pandemic than this. We're, we're not convinced that that, sure. that is actually the best way of preparing for a pandemic. How about we, we do more testing in human beings? We do, uh, you know, we, 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 we work on making vaccines easier to develop, etc. But the other group said, well, actually, no, because one of the things we're doing is that we think we can come up with a pan-coronavirus pandemic, uh, sorry, a pan-coronavirus vaccine. that will enable us to uh, vaccinate everybody um, before against any kind of coronavirus pandemic. And that would be a wonderful thing. And we deserve the Nobel Prize for getting that sort of thing. And and actually, you know, it's not a bad ambition to have. But, you know, I I say again, they didn't achieve that. Um, I mean, some of the ideas they came up with were also a little bit wacky. I mean, they were talking about spraying a mist into caves of a vaccine which they hadn't yet invented that would immunize the bats against these viruses they were talking about developing an app that soldiers could have on their phones alerting them to the um, proximity of disease carrying bats well i can't believe that's really a priority for the pentagon yeah yeah. I, mean, I, I always worry about these things anytime we put limits on scientists. And I know you do, too, because, I mean, the whole, your whole point about ideas having sex, well, they have to meet and they have to they have to generate more ideas. Uh, but it does it does seem like this is one of those cases where the downsides are, are so significant and, and the upside at least seemingly are, lim- are limited. Um, well, it, you know, one of the things that worries me is the degree to which this will reinforce the concerns of yep. an anti-science movement. Yeah, so that was people my next question. Yes. People who are anti-GMOs, uh, you know, quite a lot of these freedom of information requests are being driven by what for me are uncomfortable bedfellows, people who are campaigning against uh, GMOs and things like that. So, yeah, I, I, that was going to be my next question is what do you think? I mean, not just, not just the origins, but just the whole COVID phenomena, the way we responded, the way different governments responded, the way this has become tribal and political. Do you worry about people's attitudes towards science, towards progress, towards innovation as as we move here into the future? I do. Um, I mean, uh, you know, let's not forget that the uh, development of the vaccines was a a triumph for science, uh, a triumph for technology, a, a triumph for knowledge. Um, you know, the work on messenger RNA technology that led to these rapid vaccine developments has been going on for 20, 30 years. It was a fairly neglected field, but it's now shown what we can do. And I think the result is that from now on, we will be able to turn on a new vaccine for a new threat much quicker than we'd been able to do before. That's a thrilling prospect. And and if you look at vaccine development before the pandemic, it was a terribly slow business still. If anything, it was taking longer than it used to. And I dug out complaints from people in this field from 2019 saying, before the pandemic began, saying, I'm sorry, but, you know, the 
we, we really got to get better at producing um, vaccines. And an organization called the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, backed by people like the Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust, was starting work from 2017, saying we've got to get quicker at making vaccines uh, because otherwise we're going to be taken by surprise by a pandemic. It didn't get going soon enough. But I do think that out of this pandemic, such stuff will come. But also out of this pandemic will come a lot of people who have lost respect for scientists, either because they're anti-vax, and you know, I, I, I'm pro-vax myself, but I do worry that making vaccines compulsory tends to cause, uh, you know, uh, tends to backfire. Um, uh, and also the model, you know, the scientific modelers who told us with absolute certainty that there was going to be a spike next month or there was, you know, we needed to lock down now. And we, and you know, in the UK, we were told if we, oh, yeah. if we uh, ended all restrictions in July, there would be a catastrophic number of deaths by September, October. We've had nothing like that. So I do think modeling, scientific modeling, which is a branch of science I've had it in for, for a number of years, yeah. Um, yeah. deserves a, 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 a good, um, critical look after this pandemic. Um, but I worry that if I say things like that, other people will say, yo, see, we can ignore all science, you know, and I, you know, I worry about bad scientific practice dragging down the reputation of all science. And, and what's happened in the US, but I, I think this happened in the UK as well, is the scientists got involved in politics. And, and they, they, you couldn't separate them. You know, Fauci is now a political figure. He's not a scientist anymore. And, uh, and uh, no matter what you think about Fauci, much of the debate is, is couched in, in politics. And uh, I think the same thing happened in the UK where, where all Absolutely. these scientists from Oxford and elsewhere, yeah. um, which yeah. does bring us to, I know people are curious what's your opinion of Fauci, but in particular with respect to, you know, this, this gain of function research and, the lab leak, I know he's had some exchanges with, with uh, Senator uh, Rand Paul uh, over this. Uh, do you have any opinion about uh, what he knows, what he's hiding, or what he, or, or is it, is, or is he really is, it really clueless as he claims to be? Well, I, tr I try and stay out of that particular one for yeah. two reasons. One, because it's, as you say, a, a US political row. Uh, I'm not US based. Uh, I don't, I'm not close enough to, to decide who's right and who's wrong. Um, uh, and uh, the other reason is because the, there is, there's clearly a, uh, you know, a sort of gray area of interpretation here. And, and for me, the, the big deal is what happened in China. And I don't think, you know, if we spend too much time focusing on whether or not someone is misleading someone else within the United States, we to some extent let off the hook what was happening in China. Yes, there was gain of function research funded in the US, probably just within the spirit, the letter of the rules, if not the spirit of them. Um, yes, some of that money found its way to China to support work at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but no, it wasn't their main source of income. Most of these experiments were being funded by the Chinese Academy of Sciences, not the EcoHealth Alliance behind that, the, the US government. So, um, so I, I, on the whole, I think the Rand Paul-Anthony Fauci disagreement is a sideshow 
and I kind of want to keep it that way, sure. but I recognize that it's not an unimportant sideshow. So uh, somebody's asking about the one of the other hypotheses that were presented by the Chinese, um, which was which which they really promoted, which was the frozen food scenario, which you cover in the book. Um, yeah. So is is that is that even a possibility? And then if not, what is the most plausible case for an you know a direct um, animal to human? Uh, transmission. What, what would the Chinese argue is the most likely scenario? Right. Um, well, um, it, it just think through, you know, let's remember that in February, we were uh, confronted with a press conference um, jointly from the World Health Organization and the Chinese uh, scientists uh, saying, we've looked into this and our conclusion, which we've all signed up to, uh, is that a frozen food import origin for this virus uh, is quite likely and a uh, laboratory uh, accident origin is very unlikely. So they were deliberately saying one is much more likely than the other. Just think that through for a moment. First of all, there's no evidence at all. There's no individual piece of frozen food that had the virus on it. Secondly, are you saying that somewhere in southern China there's a hog badger farm where he farms hog badgers, which happens, and he chops them up and put, freezes them and ships them off to markets all over China. Most of them go to Guangdong province, but a few go north to Wuhan. And it so happens that one of these samples, one of these uh, shipments has a, a, a dangerous virus on it. The virus somehow survives the freezing and the shipping, even though that generally isn't great for viruses. But it never infects the farmer. It never infects the people in the food handling factory. It never infects the people in the freezing plant. It never infects anybody along the way. It never affects anybody in Guangdong province or any other province that receives these shipments. It only infects people at one market in one city, which doesn't have a great deal of this stuff being sold in it, in the city of Wuhan. And then it disappears. You know, we get one shipment that does this, but we test the samples in early January 2020, they did that. No, they couldn't find this virus. They found it on surfaces in the, in the uh, market where people, infected people had touched things, but they could not find it on any stuff that was for sale in the market. So I'm sorry, but that really does stretch credibility to the limit. When Peter Daszak was asked about that, he said, but we found that they were selling hog badgers and um, uh, ferret badgers and uh, bamboo rats in this market. And later evidence came to light, which they didn't know at the time, that some of these animals were live when sold. Um, uh, so that, he said, is dynamite. That is direct evidence. No, it's not. What you've got to find is that one of these is infected. <laughs> and do you think they're suppressing any of the animal results? Well, that, there is an interesting possibility, which is that the Chinese authorities are just as reluctant to come up with a uh, live animal trade explanation of this pandemic as they are of a laboratory one. Why? Because uh, traditional Chinese medicine has been encouraged by Xi Jinping's particularly in the last few years. He persuaded the World Health Organization to recognize it as a form of, of medicine uh, for the first time in 2019. Um, uh, and 
it's based on selling wildlife products. Behind that, there has been official encouragement of wildlife farming, of civet cats and hog badgers and so on being reared on farms, not just sheep and cows and pigs, but these other wildlife animals being reared on farms. So there's been specific encouragement of this. It's, it's, it's a big trade and it's been uh, growing. So I think there's people in the Chinese authorities saying we don't want to blame that because that would cause all sorts of problems. Mm. And we don't want to blame the lab. So let's blame frozen food from, I don't know, Vietnam or Australia or somewhere. And they've which, even come up with a theory that it's from North Carolina, right? <laughs> well, they, yes, and at one point, at one point, and a, a Chinese spokesman said, um, have you noticed there've been incidents at Ralph Barrick's coronavirus laboratory in Chapel Hill, North Carolina? Why aren't we investigating them? That's much more likely because they've had these incidents. Well, A, the disease didn't start in North Carolina. It started in Wuhan. And B, incidentally, there are no horseshoe bats in North America. Yeah. And these viruses come from horseshoe bats. So when Ralph Barrick was working on these kinds of viruses, he had to get sequences from Wuhan and then use those sequences to create viruses in, in, the, in the laboratory. So, yes, it's completely possible that someone might get infected with a similar virus in Chapel Hill, um, but why that should lead to an outbreak in Wuhan, uh, not very likely. So do you think the Chinese, is, the optimal outcome is that everybody just forgets about this, that, that they never we never find out definitively where it comes from, and they'll just delay and postpone and send up, you know, send us in all kinds of directions to avoid finding the source. Is that what's motivating them at this point? Uh, yes, I think roughly that is. And if you think about what happened in the early months of this pandemic, when uh, the Chinese authorities did some very odd things. They, they persecuted and punished anybody who talked about this. They denied human-to-human -human transmission for far longer than was wise, uh, thus allowing it to escape. They published the genome of the uh, virus and compared it with a genome that they knew about, but changed the name of that other genome to obscure its origins and didn't link to the fact that it was involved in an outbreak where people had died. You know, there was a bunch of stuff that was, uh, you know, um, Keystone Cops-like in its clumsy attempt to deflect uh, attention and blame and so on. And I think it's important to remember that at that time, they didn't expect this to turn into a global pandemic with the kind of attention that it's had. At the time, we were thinking this would be a little local outbreak in Wuhan. I mean, I certainly went on thinking well into February that this was like SARS, it would blow over in a month or two. Um, uh, and uh, you know, it, it, the fact that it then turned into a global pandemic meant there was far more attention on these decisions they'd taken in the first month than they would have expected. Um, but in terms of what they hope will happen now, there's an interesting parallel. Sverdlovsk, 1939, Soviet Union, um, 80 people die of anthrax. There's a plant in, in Sverdlovsk that is thought to be a biowarfare plant working on anthrax. Is there a connection? The Soviet authorities say no. International scientists demand a right to inspect. They get it. They're brought in. They look around. They say, well, actually, you know, we think the Soviets are right about this. It, it wasn't. And everyone, say, and everyone says, fine. And it goes away. Five or six years later, the Soviet Union collapses. 
and uh, scientists then from that plant then come forward and say, actually, you know what, we were lying. We did leave the filter off an exhaust pipe on a particular day by mistake, and it led to anthrax being sprayed downtown from our lab, and that's why 80 people died. Now, if, if the Soviet Union hadn't collapsed, we'd never have known that. Yeah. And indeed, we'd have thought that the whole story was exonerated because international scientists have been involved in looking into it. I mean, one of the things that scares me about, you know, we expect this behavior from China. We'd expect it from the Soviet Union. Those political systems are built to hide and, and to prevent information from getting out. One would have hoped that China was changing, but I think the last few years have shown us that they haven't. Um, what scares me is the, is the, is the, is the lack of uh, transparency in the U.S. From, from agencies like the EcoHealth Alliance, who must know more than what they're telling the world and, and telling scientists. And so, yes, the, the blame needs to be placed on China. I agree with you, but it's, it's a little spooky when our own governments are, are playing the same game that the authoritarians are. Um, I agree with that. Um, and uh, it, it, it's, it's shaken my faith in uh, Western countries. But at the same time, I still don't, I don't, I, I mean, some senior scientists have said to me, um, Look, Matt, of course they were secretive. That's what communist regimes do. Yep. Um, and I've said to them, I'm sorry, how is that supposed to reassure me? <laughs> Why should I let them off the hook just because they're and, communist? And, and if that's the case, we shouldn't be funding research in these countries. We should be very careful in how we cooperate with them and how we engage with them, it seems to me. If they're going to hide stuff, then it's not my tax money that should be going to, 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 to be funding these things. Well, I, I do think that, I mean, you know, we, we've, we've been keenly cooperating on scientific issues with China for uh, two or three decades now, and it's brought enormous benefits yep. um, to, in both directions. But there have been increasing worries about the degree to which um, uh, either corporate or government espionage is involved in some of these collaborations. Um, and I think under Hu Jintao and uh, a sort of relatively liberal leader, it was going along fine under the much more um, authoritarian regime that Xi Jinping is increasingly uh, asserting. Uh, I think we need to think very hard about some of these collaborations. I agree. And this, this should be a... This should be an important piece of evidence or, or something to think about. So um, somebody has a question that is more broadly about COVID. Um, so, so do you think do you think we should now consider COVID as, as a seasonal flu like where we take a, a you know, a, a, like a seasonal flu shot once a year? Is that what's going to happen? Is it endemic indeed to to human populations now? Roughly speaking, yes. The uh, case fatality rate uh, is now down to uh, somewhere around 0.1% in most people, particularly in younger people. Um, that's pretty similar to flu. Um, uh, we don't try and shut down society because of flu. Um, and so I think that's, uh, I, I think, you know, it's probably evolving to be milder too. I think there's some evidence that the Delta variant is much more infectious, but not more virulent, slightly less virulent. Um, and I think that generally tends to happen. You know, don't forget there are 200 different kinds of virus that cause the common cold. Uh, none of them kill us, um, or at least 
yeah. hardly ever kill us. Yeah. Uh, and four of those are coronaviruses, which probably began with nasty pandemics that then settled down to being much milder viruses. So I, I think that that is the way we're going to go. I don't think we can eradicate it because um, it's in our animals too. I mean, I was talking to a neighbor of mine uh, yeah. who has had COVID in the last couple of weeks and uh, her cat has now got it. <laughs> so, um, and I read somewhere that the deer in Michigan, you know, a significant yeah. percentage of the deer in Michigan have it, which is... I, that's scary. a scary thought, isn't it? Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So do you think this is, are we going to see an increase in research on viruses? Uh, is this, is this kind of the wake up call that people needed COVID for, for more innovation, more science, more investment in, uh, in protecting us from the next pandemic? Uh, certainly the, um, uh, you know, the, the mRNA is, is very promising, not only for this, but also for, for, what malaria and other things, but, but, yeah. but is this going to, is, is there going to be a positive outcome from this? Not that anything would justify what we've been through. Over the yes. Last I, I think, I think, I, I do think that um, I think vaccines in particular will get a huge boost if that's not a pun. And um, uh, the, 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 the biotech century is going to get a kickstart out of this. I've believed for some time, although not with enormous confidence that whereas the last 50 years were dominated by computers and communication innovation, and the previous 50 years were dominated by transport innovations, the, the next 50 years are going to be dominated by innovations in biotechnology. Uh, and I suspect that that'll be one of the consequences of the pandemic, that we'll see much more of, of that. So in the end, are you still a, still a rational optimist? <laughs> Yes, I am. Um, you can sense a tiny hesitation in my voice there. Uh, um, I, I'm very aware of the fact that ever since I wrote The Rational Optimist in 2010, in every year, people have always said to me, are you still a rational optimist? I mean, have you seen what's happening in Syria? Have you seen what's happening in Ebola? Have you seen what's happening in Ukraine? Have you seen what's happening with the, the Euro crisis? You know, there's always been a reason every year to dent my rational optimism. And I've always said, well, yeah, but in the big picture, on the whole, things are getting better. Look what's happening in Africa, you know, incredible declines in malaria mortality and uh, um, uh, child mortality generally in, in living improvements in living standards, lifespan, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, much greater, you know, it's been a great decade for Africa compared with previous ones. Um, and it's the poorest continent. Uh, so I, I retain that general rational optimism but uh the pandemic has reminded us that that black swans can knock us off course it might be an asteroid next but you know we shouldn't forget that mm -hmm. more more disturbingly there's an internal phenomenon in human society happening that bothers me um and that at three in the morning turns me into an irrational pessimist and that is the turning of our back on the enlightenment yes. uh, the, the, the 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 increasing cultural revolution that says we don't believe in evidence we don't believe in uh, reason uh, we basically um uh, think that those are um old white male values or something like that i don't know how far that could go you know look at what happened in cambodia or or um 
or in yeah. China in the Cultural Revolution, um, that was under an authoritarian regime. I'd like to think that in a free society, uh, we'll always be able to um, uh, rebel against too much uh, cultural despotism, if I could put it that way. But I have my moments of doubt these days. I think we all do. Uh, yes, and, and part of the turn against the Enlightenment is the turn towards more authoritarianism. Uh, it goes Correct. hand in hand. The Enlightenment was the era that led us towards political freedom. And if we lose, we lose reason, we lose, I think, it all. We, we, um, it's quite a fragile flower. Yeah. It's rare in human history. So um, what's next? I know it's a weird time to ask you about this, but is there another project? Is there Give something you're eager to write about? Give me a break, huh? I've just written two books oh. in two years. I mean, you have to, you have to defend the enlightenment here, Matt. <laughs> the world depends on it. <laughs> I uh, um, uh, yeah. completely understand. I completely understand. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just eager for the next one. <laughs> so. Thank you so much. Yeah, well. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I did I want to ask you this, and I don't know if you have a, a minute just to say something about this. I, I, there was a touching piece in the in the book about the kind of the heroes in China who, and this is kind of to counter the authoritarian nature of the regime, which we know is 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 very evil and, and a lot, lot of bad things. But there were some people, Chinese citizens who risked their lives and, and risked their freedom. Uh, early on in the pandemic uh, to, to warn us. And, and I wonder if you could just say a few things about that and then, and then I'll let Completely, you go. Completely, yeah. Thank you for that opportunity because, you know, we're not picking a fight with the Chinese people here, quite the reverse. You know, they, they've suffered terribly in this and most Chinese people are, are simply wonderful people. Um, and early in the pandemic in particular, there were a bunch of people who... Um, tried to get information out to the outside world about what was happening, um, spoke very openly and at huge risk to themselves, and then were either disappeared or uh, reprimanded or um, uh, fired or so-called rectified in really unpleasant ways. And this is a huge reminder of the fact that, um, uh, you know, just as the Soviet Union... Um, collapsed and we discovered that actually its people did want to be free after all, despite what we'd been told. Uh, the same is true of, of China, that, that there, are, there are good people doing good work trying to um, uh, help and freely communicate with the rest of the world. And they are, they are the really unsung heroes here. Um, and I hope, by the way, that among them are people who are thinking of ways of blowing the whistle and coming out to the West and telling us a lot of what happened. I mean, one or two people have already done that, but not from right in the heart of this story. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've, Alina makes this point very well again and again, we've got to look after such people if they do come out. You know, at the moment, there's not a lot of incentive. You know, you, you, you get a couple of uh, interviews on Fox News and then you're kind of tossed aside. Um, I think we've got to make it clear that uh, such people are welcome in the West and we would like to hear from them. Yeah, it sounds like that is maybe the only way we will find out what actually happened. Somebody knows. Yep. Thank you, Matt. I really appreciate this.
this was uh, this was a lot of fun. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Good, good. Hopefully, uh, next time it'll be on something more uh, more positive and invigorating. But uh, but we need to cover these stories. We need to cover all these stories as well. I uh, thank you all for for listening today. Really appreciate uh, your support. Don't forget uh, ingenuism.com. You can uh, subscribe to the Substack. Uh, don't forget to share the video, to like the video, to do all the things you know how to do uh, on social media. Uh, let's get let's get word about uh, Matt's new book, Viral: The Search for the Origins of Whoops. There we go of COVID nineteen. Let's get it out there and uh, get it sold. Thanks, Matt. Uh, hope to catch up with you in London one of these days. Please look me up when you get the chance. Good. Bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.